This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Wine Guy, WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the unmitigated pleasure of having back as my first repeat guest, Jim Schlexer. Now, Jim is a certified sommelier from the Court of Master Sommeliers, has an advanced certification from the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and is a business person with 30 years of professional drinking experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. As the CEO of the Inc. CEO Project, a firm that offers coaching and advising services to CEOs of fast growth companies, he has entertained business associates around the globe. He is committed to helping professionals navigate wine while keeping it fun. He has a popular blog that speaks to the same topics as his book at professionaldrinking.com. Jim is an engineer, chemical, not choo-choo, an avid soccer player, and recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Jim, it is great having you back on the podcast, my friend. Welcome back. Why, thank you, Scott. I think we need like Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, a club for the people that have been on a lot of times. So That's I'll right. be the first I'll, I'll one to on five your... if I do this right. I'll work on getting you a jacket. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Jim, last time you were on the podcast, we were going back and forth. You were telling me about a book that you were going to be writing about entertaining and wine. and Holy crap, you actually did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got together this infinite number of monkeys and we worked together. <laughs> and the great American novel emerged. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I wrote uh, Professional Drinking, A Spirited Guide to Wine, Cocktails, and Confident Business Entertaining. Yeah, I was working out. on it pre-COVID, but it, it kind of got finished off during COVID. And, and it's out now? When does it come out? September 16th. Uh, available right. on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, stores near you. So, so why did why did you write the book? Two reasons. You know, one is as I was doing all this wine education, I knew I was not going back into the restaurant to work. I would be a guest, but I wasn't going to work. I did that in high school and college, so that wasn't the path I was going to take. But I said, what can I do with this information I've gained? And I noticed that my clients, and these are really powerful CEOs, you know, masters of their universe decisive. You hand them a wine list and they, their hands start shaking and they get the flop sweat and they, they just don't know what to do it in that environment. And it's not a money thing. It's a confidence and a knowledge thing. And I said, you know, I wonder if there's a book that kind of solves that problem. And there isn't. I mean, there's thousands of wine books and hundreds of beer books and lots of cocktail books. And there's no book that says, how do you entertain around wine and spirits in a professional setting. And so I, I decided I was going to write that book. Very cool. So what was the goal with the book then? To educate professionals, other CEOs? You know, it really is designed for any professional, anybody who spends time with people in an entertaining environment and in restaurants, which we'll be back to eventually. And so it could be a salesperson or a biz dev person or a CEO. Or, But look, at the end of the day, we buy from people we know and like and trust. And one of the really great ways to establish know, like, and trust is sit down and have a meal together. It's time or uh, honored tradition. And so spirits, wine, cocktails, beer are involved in a lot of times. And so it's that environment where you're trying to build relationships with people in a professional way where it's really appropriate. Um, it probably helps for people to just do it with friends too. It, it would be okay for that too, but it was really designed for, uh, 
you know, professional entertaining of one form or another. So you use the term of art professional drinker. What, what, I mean, I kind of consider myself a professional drinker, but that's another story. What do you mean when you use the term professional drinker? You know, we've all been amateur drinkers our whole life, right? You know, to get paid for it. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> uh, sign me up. Um, but, you know, it's really drinking in a professional setting. Um, and so there are sort of rules of engagement when you're doing it. Because everybody knows how to drink. I mean, we learned that a long time ago, college or whenever. But how do you drink in a professional setting? How do you do it with elegance? How do you make your guests feel comfortable? How do you have them give them a great experience? And how do you let all of that happen and not get in the way of the real goal, which is build relationship and talk about business at some point. And so a great professional drinker, you know, they know a great cocktail and they recommend you try it and it's awesome. They pick the perfect wine. They know how to work with the Psalm. All of that are the marks of a professional drinker. Do you have like any kind of tips or, or any hints for people that are doing that kind of entertaining? Yeah. I mean, the first tip is like, loosen up. Wine is fun. I mean, you can't screw it up too badly. So don't worry about it. People get really tense about that environment and I'm going to make a mistake or I'm going to order a bad wine. So rule number one is just have fun. I mean, loosen up and have fun. It's not going to be that bad. You're drinking wine with friends. You know, life is pretty good right then and there. The second one is like pizza and sex, there is no bad wine. It's all pretty good. Even not such good, not very good pizza is pretty good. And the same thing's true, of, right? Same thing's true of wine. Like even not so good, the greatest wine is pretty good wine. And particularly in the restaurant environment where every single bottle on that list has been curated and tasted by either a general manager or a sommelier. So you don't get any clunkers on a wine list normally. They checked it. Um, and so it's, it's all known good wine. You could just literally close your eyes and give me one of those and you'll probably be just fine. And so it, it's not, it shouldn't have the stress around it that it does. So have fun, loosen up and there is no bad wine and you're halfway home with those ideas in mind. But you know, Jim, it's interesting because when you and I go out and God knows we have, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think at least I'll speak for myself. I'm not really careful about my consumption around you. Because you and I have a, a great relationship, right? We're, we're good friends. So when you talk about drinking with friends, whether it's wine or spirits or cocktails or beer, when you talk about drinking in, in a social environment with friends versus a professional environment with clients, I have to imagine there's a slightly different dynamic. And you point this out in your book. I do. Yeah. R rule number one is don't get drunk. I mean, just don't get drunk in a professional Well, I'm, I'm right out there. I'm <laughs> I know, right? Well, if you were professional, it'd be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're going to go over to a friend's house and tie a few on, then have a party. I mean, it's casual. It's fine. It's your choice. Just don't drive, please. But in the era of Uber, there is no excuse for drunk driving anymore. I mean, just right. get, a, get a car. In fact, you know, when we are going to go have a dinner and we know there's a few bottles of wine involved, we Uber in, in and we Uber home. So there is no car yeah. involved generally. Right. So yep. that's a strategy. But in a professional environment, you can't get drunk. You really can't. And so I got a couple of sort of how do you think about that? And for me, if you're two drinks an hour above, you are drunk at my weight. A big guy can drink more. And then your body metabolizes about a drink an hour. 
So if I'm there for four hours and I have five drinks, my body metabolized four and I'm only plus one on the drinks, I'm fine. I could drive. If I drank eight in four hours, I'm plus four. I'm drunk. I should not be driving. And so pace your drinking, depending on how many hours you're going to be together, about one drink an hour. You could do plus one to that and you'll be okay. If you go more than plus one, you really shouldn't be driving and you shouldn't be doing it in the professional environment. So, right. Yeah. The dynamic is the dynamics different, right? Because yeah. when you're with clients or you're with uh, other advisors. You want to make sure that you're keeping your wits about you. Yeah, well, the goal is to talk business at some point in the night or at a minimum, have a cogent conversation about their lives and their family and what they like to do. And if you just get sloshed, it, it's a bad look, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people assess, will assess you based on that. And if you want to do business with them, and you show you did a sloppy drunk on the first time on the first date, if you will, I'd have to think about, boy, is there a judgment issue I have to consider when I'm thinking about doing business with this person? And so it's, it's, it's a bad look all around. Just you can't get drunk. So do you actually have any horror stories you can share about wine and entertaining? <laughs> um, well, this is really around uh, a host handing someone the wine list, which is some things sometimes we'll do that with a, a guest we want to make an impression on or, and uh, this particular was a sales guy handed somebody, his client, this the wine list and said, Hey, why don't you pick the client proceeded to pick a couple of really lovely wines. And when the bill showed up at the end of the evening, there were three $500 bottles of wine on the bill, which he then had to go explain to the controller why he spent $1,500 on wine for a couple of people at dinner. And it was a, just not, a great situation. And so that's kind of a classic embarrassing situation when either you hand the list to somebody and they just get stupid with the wine prices or you get handed the wine list and you go, all right, how much of my host's money am I supposed to spend here? It's a real pickle if you don't know how to handle yourself in that situation. So that's a classic, you know, the, uh, I've had it happen to myself. Can you share with me maybe just if, if I'm handed the wine list, and my host is saying, okay, Scott, go ahead and pick. How do I kind of gauge how, what, what my budget is? Do you have any tips for me? I, I do. And the book is available on September 16th. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of, couple of tips. You know, for me, I start with humor. Uh, I, I'll, when they hand me the list, I, I'll go, uh, so how crazy do you want me to get? Ooh, I like that. In fact, I, I did it uh, just a few months ago, pre-COVID. Uh, somebody handed me the list. And I got the list and I'm looking at the wine prices and I, I leaned over and I said, how good a year are you having? <laughs> right? And they said, just an okay year. I said, thank you. That's guidance on how much I can spend on the wine. Just okay, not crazy. If they said, we are having an amazing year, I go, can I have the reserve list, please? <laughs> we're, we're stepping up. The other sort of rule of thumb is maybe two that are worth sharing. One is on almost every wine list, there are what I call lifesaver wines. So these are wines that are there because they're at the right price, they're reasonable price to quality ratio, and everybody knows the brand, and they are Silver Oak, Alexander Valley, and Camus. And they both weigh in generally about 100 to $125 a bottle. So that's your marker. That is the known good price. That's the businessman's price for a decent bottle of wine. I could either just buy those, or I could go look on the list, but that's the price point I'm going to work with is the Camus price or the Alexander Valley price. I don't want to go north of it. I can go a little below it. So those are 
markers that tell you how much to spend in that particular place. The other one that I use is two to three times the entree price. So if I'm in a steak place and the steaks are going at 50 bucks a steak, I could spend a hundred to $150 on the bottle of wine and I'd be in the just okay year kind of position, right? If I'm in a spaghetti place and it's $25 a plate, I'm probably more at $50, $60 a bottle of wine is kind of about a limit of where I want to be. Now, if they said, go crazy, I could double those numbers, right? And if they said, eh, it's been a kind of a tough year, I might stay down at the lower end of those ranges. So those, those are good guidance on how much of my, if they don't guide you. But having said that, if you're the host, it's your job to tell the person you hand the list how much they can spend. If it's friendly and like I kind of know you, I might say, hey, Scott, pick something around $100 a bottle, you know, that you think would be great for us. Or I might just come over and whisper it to you if it's more of a public, more formal setting where we don't know each other quite as well. So those are a couple of guidelines on how much to spend and avoid that $1,500 wine bill with a brand new client. Right. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Jim, because last time you were on the podcast, and, and people are still talking about this. It was the one <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> tip. Yeah. <laughs> it was the one greatest tip that you gave on that podcast where a sommelier hands you the wine list and you then have a method of silently communicating to the sommelier how much you want to spend on a yep. bottle of wine. Can you just repeat that? Because I got to tell you, we've gotten a lot of great reviews on that. Too. Really? I, we should call that the Schlexer technique so everybody knows. I think <laughs> we do call it that. I should name it, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, this is an environment where you have a little more of a formal setting and you can't just yell out a price because you don't want to put that out in front of your guests for whatever reason. And so the technique is you open the wine list, you run your finger down the list. Now you're not pointing at the wines, you're pointing at the prices. You stop at the price of what you'd like to spend, because sometimes we don't know the wine, but we do know how much we'd like to spend, whether it's 100 or 150 or more you want to spend, or 50. You point at the price, and you say to the sommelier or the general manager, whoever's helping you, I'm thinking about something in this region. Now, everybody thinks you're pointing to the Loire Valley or Provence or wherever, Italy. Every psalm worth their salt will go, why, yes, sir, I understand. What's everybody having for dinner? And then they'll pick something at whatever the price point you were pointing to. And so that's the great sort of elegant way to communicate a price. Everybody knows that game, but your, your guests won't know what you did. And so that's, that's the technique. That is perfect. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I've Thank used you it. for sharing that again, because I, I just think that that was one of the takeaways that we had from our last podcast. Now, you did, you did compare wine and sex a moment ago. <laughs> And you say, well, there is no bad wine, but what is a good wine in your opinion? Well, the, the easy answer, and I, you probably get this question all the time as a wine guy, and I do too, gee, is this good wine? And my simple answer is, do you like it? And I go, well, yeah, I, I like it quite a bit. I go, then it's good wine. Don't worry about it. Right? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If you like it, it's good wine. But having said that, the professionals have a little different standard that they use when they assess good wine. And let me be clear that good wine is relative to the price you paid. So I might expect one experience on a $10 bottle of wine, simple, easy drinking, nothing fancy. If I spend $100 on a bottle of wine, I expect a different experience. So the, the P is higher, so the Q better be higher too. So they kind of go to go together. And so they think of 
uh, a four-letter acronym when they think of wine quality, and it's BLIC, B-L-I-C, B-L-I-C. So B is, is the wine in balance? The tannins don't dominate. The acid doesn't dominate. The fruit is pleasant and appropriate. It's a balanced wine. It's a nice experience. L is length, and, and a good balance is better than unbalanced, right? So you've probably had single note wines that are all acid or all fruit or tannin that makes you pucker up like you just sucked on a stick and they're not that pleasant to drink. Maybe age would help the tannin one, by the way. Length is the second one. And that's how long does it last after you take a sip? Uh, so a quick sort of in and out, you taste it and it's gone in a second. That's a less com that's a less sophisticated wine, generally considered less good. Long, finish, you know, kind of sits on the palate. It has layers as it finishes in your palate. And some you've had wines that go 30 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half on your palate after you've taken the sip. That's a good wine when you have a long finish like that. Uh, intensity is I. Uh, is it an intense wine? When I smell it, has it got all kinds of interesting stuff going on? It's got good flavors. It's not sort of thin and not much going on. And I really got to stick my schnoz in there to get any, any kind of uh, fruit or non-fruit or odors out of it. So it's got nice intensity. It pops in my nose and I really can get some, a nice flavor and nice smell. And then C and it, all same thing on the palate, right? It, good intensity, good flavors on my palate. And then C is complexity. Is it single note, you know, all fruit, nothing else. Is it uh, all acid, nothing else. Or is it got fruit and non-fruit and tannins that are nicely integrated and acid and, and it goes on forever. And it's just got lots of interesting stuff going on. It's complex and interesting wine. That's C. So a, a good wine is balanced, nice long finish, high intensity, good complexity. A simple wine, it's not that well balanced. It's not that intense. It's not complex and it finishes quickly. That's a simple wine. And I wouldn't generally consider, I wouldn't pay as much for that wine or I shouldn't have paid as much for that wine. So that's how the professionals think of quality in wine. But frankly, for the purposes of most people is you like it, it's good wine. Okay, okay. fair enough. So um, by the way, I, I was not familiar with BLIC, but now I'm gonna use it, thanks. Like, yeah, BLIC. So when you're thinking about a wine, is it good or not? Right. Balanced well, and turned, yeah. That brings up an interesting, so the other day, we had some friends over, socially distanced, of course, and uh, grilled, up, grilled up some lamb chops, and I was able to pull out two Australian Shiraz wines, one in screw cap and one in cork. Nice. And it was a very, I did it on purpose, because I personally wanted to see how these wines compared with each other. They were both the same vintage, Hmm. So that was, you know, kind of a fair fist fight. But I have to say, and I'll, I'll, give, I'll give away the ending after I ask you the question. How do you feel about screw cap versus cork? Another one of those questions we get all the time, right? Which one's better? Right. And, and because people wonder, and the answer is, it depends, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, right? But, but let's just think about the winemaker's intent when they chose the enclosure. So... The thing about a screw cap is that it is essentially a perfect enclosure. Nothing's getting in or out. No oxygen's getting in. No bad buggies are getting in. Nothing. And the other good news is because there's no cork there, it, the wine cannot be corked. So the good news is you'll never have a corked wine when you have a screw cap. I'm going to stop you there, Jim. Explain what corked is. 
there's a bacteria in there. When they clean the corks, it interacts with a chemical they use called TCA that shows up in the cork and it ends up in the wine. So when the wine comes in contact with the cork that's contaminated with TCA, which happens sometimes, I can't really stop it. It has like a wet dog, a wet cardboard, musty basement taste. We've all had them. Um, sometimes it's very mild, sometimes it's intense. And so it's just one of the natural things that happens when a cork is used to seal a wine that one in, you know, 20 bottles is going to be corked, something like they've gotten better over time, but it's still about that kind of rate. But that phenomena does not occur in a screw cap because there's no cork. So it's a perfect enclosure. In the case of a cork, it's a lovely enclosure. They squeeze it in, put it in the, and there's this visceral experience of you know, popping out the, uh, the cork. It's sort of, it's fun times are ahead. The downside is you can cork the wine. The good news is that it's, it's a perfect barrier that allows just a little bit of oxygen into the wine over time. And when we talk about aging wine, that really means that it oxidizes. In other words, a little bit of oxygen gets in at a very, very slow rate and it changes the flavors in the bottle. We call those tertiary flavors that, that develop in the bottle. So things like tobacco, for example, is a tertiary flavor that develops after the winery. And it only develops when that little bit of oxygen gets in through the cork into the wine. So per, micro permeable cork that lets a little bit of oxygen allows aging to occur. Screw cap, perfect enclosure that doesn't let anything into the bottle. As a winemaker, if I want you to drink exactly what left the winery, no tertiary flavors, in other words, nothing's going to develop after it comes out of the winery, I'll use a screw cap because I don't want to ch no changing. And so like nice, simple whites and some reds are very nice under a screw cap, but they're exactly what came out of the winery, no change. If I think my wine would benefit from some age, and most reds, particularly more complex reds, would benefit from a bit of age, you probably need a, a cork in that wine to enable that little bit of oxygen to get in and age it over time with the risk of TCA and, uh, and corking the wine. So the last element is sometimes it's a marketing thing. Sometimes they have a very simple wine. It really doesn't need to be under cork. It should probably be under screw cap. And they put it in a cork because it makes it feel fancy and maybe they got a, a half a buck or a buck more for their, for their wine because it's under cork versus screw cap. So it depends. Depends on the winemaker. Yeah. Depends on what they're trying to do. I'll give away the ending from our Yeah. They were 2014s, which, mm -hmm. you know, Australia was at the forefront, really, of, of getting quality wines under screw cap. Mm -hmm. It wasn't unusual to have a 2014 or even earlier Shiraz under screw cap. And you nailed it, Jim. Mm -hmm. Both wines were delicious. They were perfect with, with the lamb and really enjoyable. But the Wonder Screw Cap was fairly just one note. I mean, it was a lot of fruit, not a lot of complexity, perfectly enjoyable to drink. We really did like it. But it did taste like it just came right off the production line. Yeah. Whereas the, the Shiraz with the cork in it did have that, those layers of complexity, you know, had those peppery notes and that beautiful sort of blue and red fruit that were really well integrated. Mm. Just an enjoyable experience, even a little bit of menthol uh, in, in the corked wine. Uh, and I don't mean corked and meaning. <laughs> yeah, no, like it comes yeah, from the corked enclosure. That's interesting. So, they actually, there's one um, Australian wine that they actually put uh, nitrogen on top of that as well. So they 
they use a screw cap and there's a little nitrogen on top of the wine. So nothing is changing inside right. that bottle, right? That is truly a preserved wine. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing's changing. So really I, cool. I, I generally prefer corked wine, wines with corks because I like that aging process. I like those tertiary flavors. But, you know, it depends on the wine, depends on the winemaker. So it depends. Well, speaking of wine under cork, now's the time where we got to find out what's in your glass, Jim. <laughs> uh, you told me to bring two. I did. <laughs> You're supposed to have two. Did you bring I do. Two? So I'm going to start. So one of the fundamental divisions in the world that people should think about is old world, new world. So I have an old world wine. I have a new world wine. Old world being kind of all of Europe, really where the Romans went, because the water was not safe to drink. And so they grew wine to give to their troops to keep them healthy. And so everywhere the Romans went as the Roman Empire expand, they planted grapes. So that's why you find them in Spain and France and Germany. It's because the Romans brought them and planted wine uh, to, for the troops. So old world wine first. So I love uh, Chianti and I have a 2015, which is a stunningly good year in Italy, uh, Badia a Passignano, Chianti Classico, and this is a DOCG, which is the best caliber of wine they make, a very limited sort of geographic area and certain quality standards and certain aging standards. It is also a Gran Selezione, which actually doesn't mean anything legally. Um, but it, I think as a winemaker, they say, well, that was the best juice I know how to make. So and, it's, uh, and by the way, a relatively new designation. Well, because it's made up. It's well, yeah, not. <laughs> it was, I should say that it was just recently made up. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe someday that'll they'll make it mean something, but it, it generally means a better quality of wine from a particular maker. But it actually has no legal represent. Once you're a DOCG, legally that's as good as you're going to get. So this is a lovely wine. I mean, and you know the thing about old world wines is the first thing you smell is non fruit. Item. So I get leather and cedar, a little bit of a clay, a little bit of a sanguinous note. There's lovely red cherries on this and uh, tart, uh, a little bit of raspberry even. So just delicious, but very earthy smelling in the glass. And on the palate, like tart acidity. I'm salivating already. Those cherry, that bright heart cherry is just making my mouth water. I get that tobacco, that leather is a little vanilla, which means this has had oak, which you would expect in that kind of wine. Uh, you know, I like this wine because it's good all by itself. I could just drink this. Because of that acid, it just keeps me, makes me want more and more. I mean, it just, my mouth waters when I drink it, so it makes me want another sip. But if I had a, a bowl of pasta with red sauce, it would be outstanding. I mean, you gotta, when you think about pairing, one of the rules is what grows together goes together. And so when you're drinking Italian wine, Italian food is just an easy go-to move. So Italian food would just be delicious with this particular wine. So I love it for the food pairing, and I, and I like drinking it just by itself. So Chianti, you can never go wrong with Chianti in my book. I agree. And one of the things that you and I have in common and have shared over the years is our love of Chianti. Mm. Uh, Italian wines in general, Chianti specifically, just think it's such a wonderfully versatile wine and pairs great. You know I'm obsessed with food pairings, yeah, wine pairings. So it's uh, something that's, in my book, one of the best things that you can pair with food. Mm. Love Chianti. What mm. else you got for us? Uh, actually, a wine you turned me on to, 
Um, really? It's, yep. It's a wine that you can get only from the crazy guy that grows it. So this is a crazy guy that was, I think, an investment banker or something. You know him better than I do. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he went to Napa, or actually went to Sonoma, and he's like, I'm going to make wine. I really don't care if you like it or not. <laughs> so um, it's a George uh, Vintage 13, which is a Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley, specifically Hanson Vineyards, 2015, which was a nice year. And, you know, so this is a New World wine. It's in Sonoma. And you, you get what you would expect there. Just great fruit first. But this does have some nice earthy qualities. I do get tobacco on this little pencil box. Uh, but still those red fruits are very present on this wine. This, is, this just wants a piece of salmon, grilled salmon so badly, you know. And on the palate, yeah, just wonderful fruit is really the first thing you get on it, as you would expect in a New World wine. They're fruit first. And, and if you were to taste a wine blind and the fruit is driving the bus, it's a new world wine. If the fruit is on the bus but not driving the bus, it's probably an old world wine. And this one, the fruit is driving the bus. It's got a teeny bit of age on it, five years, but that gives it a little bit of mellowing. You can see it in the edge of the, uh, of the color. But yeah, just a delicious wine. Fruity, yummy. It's got nice acid. Alcohol's not too high. And when I'm drinking a wine all by itself. I don't want a high alcohol wine uh, because it burns us a little bit. So, you know, those 15.5, which really means they're 16.2 <laughs> wines. I, I don't really, uh, I don't like drinking those all by themselves. I'll drink them with food, but uh, when I'm drinking by myself, just by itself, I like a little lower alcohol wine and this is. So yummy, delicious. You could drink this all day long, but it also would go great with that grilled salmon as well. So that was, uh, by the way, George Levkoff. Is that his last name? Okay. You out, right. The, the winemaker who uh, gave up his career in finance and just said, I'm going to go make wine and I don't care if you like it or not. And that, uh, it was a great story. Actually, probably I should reach out to George, see if I can get him on a podcast sometime. Maybe have to have a, uh, a profanity filter on there. But. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. Uh, this particular bottle, they made 152 cases. And let me tell you, if you want to create a, a small fortune in the wine business, make only 152 cases and start with a large fortune, right? Because you just can't make money at 152 cases, right? It just can't be done. And I have to tell you, he does everything start to finish, start to finish. When those grapes come in from the vineyard, he is responsible for the crush. He is responsible for the vindication and he is responsible for the bottles. He even puts the labels on every <laughs> single one of those bottles. Uh, he is truly a hands-on winemaker. And I do have to agree with you. I think the, quality for the price of this wine is uh, outrageously a good deal. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm on the list of a couple of high-end um, Sonoma Pinot Noir makers for half the price. You, so the PQ here, right? Same quality, half the price. It's, and it's delicious juice. You can tell how much love he puts into it. You really can. Before I let you go, Jim, you did mention alcohol and you said it burns us and this doesn't you gave me a wonderful tip on how you can judge alcohol and wine i think you call it the button test well it's it's the andy myers button test who's a master sommelier in the dc area and when he was teaching um one of the classes i was in he talked about you know when you're blind tasting you need to assess al al alcohol content because hot areas put a lot of sugar in the grapes and therefore high alcohol Cool areas, less sugar in the grapes because you can't get them quite as ripe, so lower alcohol. So if you want to sort of give you a guidance on where something was grown, the alcohol content really does matter. And so the, the 
trick that he taught us was the button test. So think about, you know, a normal dress shirt, which we used to wear a long time ago. It's <laughs> um, a dress shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someday we'll wear them again. And if you take a sip of the wine and you let it go down your throat, think about how far down your throat it burns. If it burns sort of to your Adam's apple, it's a very low alcohol wine, maybe eight or 9%. And it goes down to maybe your, your clavicle, it might be 10 or 12, the mid chest, maybe 12, 13. It goes all the way down to your stomach and keeps going. It's probably <laughs> 16%. It's a high alcohol wine. And so by how far it burns you down your throat, you can actually determine the alcohol content of the wine just by a sip. So you can kind of amaze your friends. And Scott and I play this game of we'll sip the wine and we'll guess the alcohol content based on how far down it burns. But we're using the Andy Myers button test to, uh, to come up with the alcohol content. I love it. And if, it, and if you fill it in your tuchus, it's probably whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, it has been an absolute pleasure having you back. Yes. Podcast. I'm very excited about your book coming out. Can you please remind the listeners again, what's the name of the book, when it, and when it's coming out? So the name of the book is Professional Drinking, A Spirited Guide to Wine, Cocktails, and Confident Business Entertaining. Uh, it's available on Amazon on September 16th. Uh, it's also available on Barnes & Noble and a bunch of other sites, both in audiobook, if you like audiobooks, but you'll hear my lovely voice because I did the uh, narration. Uh, it's available on digital, if that's your format, and it's available in uh, paperback, if that's your format. So fantastic. Order. It makes a great Christmas or Hanukkah gift. Gift. Get 10, get 20. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. This is just <laughs> so wonderful. Thank it's you. just great. And then lastly, just remind our listeners, what were the two wines we tried? Uh, we tried a 2015 uh, Badia Passignano. Chianti Classico, DOCG, uh, lovely first wine, old world wine. And the second wine was a George Vintage 13, 2015, Hanson Vineyards, Russian River Valley from Sonoma, Pinot Noir. Just delicious. Both gummy yum. Thanks, Jim. Thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows on WTOP and WTOP.com. And until the next time, remember, do good, drink well. 